0: All stand together at this time. It's good to be back with you at our church family. Matthew chapter 13, we're in these kingdom parables of Jesus where he told several of them, The kingdom of heaven is like, and we see one of them uh, this morning. Uh, another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And may God bless the reading of his word today as my prayer. You may be seated. The kingdom parables. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. He forgives us of our sins. And that spares us from an eternity in hell and prepares us for an eternity in heaven. As our dear brother Bill is so fond of saying, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, it means that the worst thing that could ever happen to you will never happen. Because the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody is to die and spend eternity in hell. That's not going to happen because of Jesus Christ. When you believe in Him, you receive Him as your Savior, uh, then you're spared from hell and you are granted that eternity in heaven with God and with His people. Uh, what a glorious then time that we have, that assurance that we will always be in the presence of our Lord. But the effects of this decision are not just for eternity because we are at the moment of our salvation, a subject of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In fact, the very act of salvation involves a submission to heaven's king. Paul said it best in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To bow the knee and to confess Jesus Christ is Lord is the ultimate act of submission to Him. And that confessional truth of salvation, then Jesus Christ is Lord, is our act of submission and our receiving Him then as our Savior. Jesus described this kingdom then with the parable of the sower. That was the first one we saw a few weeks ago. The sower went forth to sow. And uh, not all of the seed made a crop. And when you sow seed in the ground, your purpose is to produce a crop. But not all of it did that. It doesn't mean that there was something wrong with the seed. Uh, What happened with some of the soil was not what it should have been. Uh, The seed was the gospel, and that's what we're doing. Uh, And not every time the gospel is preached uh, will, will somebody receive it and be saved. Not everybody who hears the gospel is going to be saved. Uh, but the gospel is uh, then, our responsibility is to sow that out into the world. The kingdom is like the tares and the, and the wheat. And uh, Jesus described how that the enemy is constantly working wherever the gospel is at work. So that when the gospel is preached, uh, there is evil that is also found in the world. There's tares among the wheat. But God didn't put us in the tare pulling business. He did not put us as His people or as His churches in the business of going out trying to eradicate all the evil in the world. God will take care of that. That's what He said. The angels will take care of that. He'll send them out. There's a time of judgment that is coming when God will deal with all of the evil in the world. In the meantime, we are to be in the business of sowing seed and and nurturing and caring for uh, that that does indeed uh, sprout and germinate and produce a crop. Now we have the third of Jesus' stories about the kingdom. That uh, is related again from the farm. And this has to do with the sowing of mustard seed into the field. Now Jesus did not have to explain this parable. Uh, which means that the disciples must have gotten this one. They didn't ask him about it. And it is certainly a very, very self-evident uh, kind of parable. The nature of the story isn't complicated. It describes something that is very, very small, the mustard seed. Now some skeptic might point out to you sometimes that when Jesus said this is the smallest of all seeds, they might point out, well, you know, there's a lot of seeds that's smaller than a mustard seed, and that's true. But this was the smallest seed that was used for cultivation, actually to to plant a crop. In the days of Jesus and so certainly he knew what he was talking about when he said this is the smallest of all seeds. It was the smallest of seeds that was planted with the intention of producing a crop. That's exactly uh, what Jesus said, exactly what the disciples would have understood. The point is it is very small but it grows into a large uh, plant, uh, kind of what we'd call a shrub. And a field full of mustard plants. They were three to five feet tall. It wasn't uncommon for them to grow as high as nine feet. We'd call that tall cotton in East Arkansas. But, you know, five feet's not even bad. So it produced a a, a good-sized plant, strong. And a field full of it would have been a, a very impressive sight. And the disciples were apparently very familiar with that. So what does this show us then about the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of Jesus Christ. Well, the first thing is, of course, very obviously, the kingdom will start small. The kingdom will start small. That was a big point for the disciples to get because the Old Testament prophecies were full of promises of the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of His kingdom. Probably one of the best and most concise uh, references that we could make from the Old Testament to this would be in Psalm 72. Uh, where this messianic psalm, this psalm written by David prophesied of the coming kingdom of the Messiah. They would have certainly been familiar with this. After all, this is the Hebrew hymnal. And they were familiar with the words of this psalm and they would have understood uh, exactly what it was. And, and, And just like we do when we sing the old rugged cross or amazing grace or how great thou art, we don't even have to look at the hymnal because its words are in our heart. It was no doubt the way with the psalms. And so this was a psalm, a song that they sang about the coming kingdom of the Messiah. In verse 4 of Psalm 72, it says that He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. So when the king of Israel sets up his kingdom, the Bible very plainly says it will cover the whole earth. He'll go on in verse 8 and says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river uh, to the end of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before Him and His enemies will lick the dust. Jesus will establish a kingdom from sea to sea. It will compass the whole earth. Several things are said about it in in Psalm 72. He will end violence and the reign of, of oppression. Imagine a world where there's no murder, no threat of murder. Where nobody's killed, nobody dies in violence. No theft, no thievery, nobody robbing, nobody killing, nobody plundering, nobody performing any acts of violence. Imagine a world like that. She said, I can't imagine a world like that. But that was the world that is promised under the rule and reign of King Jesus when He rules this world. It also describes a time when He will end all hunger. There will be no more famines. And the reason is because Psalm 72 tells us that the very mountaintops will be turned into fertile fields. I don't know how that's going to happen. Uh, We struggle when it's got a pitch like this, you know, making those things fertile. I I don't know how God will make even the mountaintops bring forth grain, but that's exactly what Psalm 72 says. Be no more hunger. Why? Because apparently there's not going to be any non-arable, non-tillable soil during the reign of Jesus. He's going to make the whole earth to flourish so that there'll be no more hunger No more disease, no more violence. All these things are spoken of in Psalm 72. No wonder that it concludes in verse 18. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be His glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with His glory. And I say it with the psalmist. Amen and amen. Yes, our King Jesus is going to set up a kingdom... For a thousand years he will rule from the city of Jerusalem and we will reign with him as his people. Isaiah spoke of it. Ezekiel speaks of it. The Old Testament prophecies are full of these references of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ the Messiah when he rules over the whole earth. No wonder the disciples were a little puzzled about this. And therefore Jesus makes a very important statement to them when he tells them that my kingdom will start small. Even John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, came speaking about this aspect of the Lord's kingdom. He said in Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, But he who is coming after me, that's Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he saw the coming reign of the Messiah, and he preached it. He preached that Jesus was coming to baptize them in the spirit, but he would also come and baptize in fire. And that winnowing fan uh, spoke of what they did with the, when they thrashed out the wheat and, and the chaff was blown away and the wheat was gathered into his barn. And so he saw that dual aspect of Jesus' coming and he preached it. We shouldn't be surprised then in Matthew chapter 11 verse 3 that John the Baptist sent him a question and said by his disciples... Are thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Are you the coming one, the Messiah? Or do we keep on looking for another of a different kind? This was the same John that preached, Behold the Lamb of God. He knew about the suffering substitute of Jesus Christ. But he was wondering, how is he going to be both? How could he be both the suffering substitute and and this one who would come and rule the world and and rain down this time of judgment? How could he be both? Do we, are you the coming one or, or do we keep on looking for another? And of course a lot of that was a mystery in the Old Testament. I just didn't, didn't reveal it. This great time that you and I are living in that the Bible calls the, the time of the Gentiles. That was not revealed in the Old Testament. Paul would tell us that because of the fact that Israel rejected its Messiah, the time of the Gentiles was ushered in. And, and we're all the beneficiaries of that. Because the gospel is being preached throughout the whole world. And we have a a wonderful opportunity then to be involved. That was always God's plan, but it wasn't always revealed. And so for him to tell the disciples, Listen, my kingdom is running on schedule. It's going to start small, but it's going to grow. That was a big thing that they needed to know. Today we look back on it historically. Historically. We know that that small band of disciples following their master would grow very quickly, become incredibly large, just a dozen, only 11 after Judas died. After the end of Jesus' ministry, how many gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? In the upper room, 120, less than our here today. It was very small. The kingdom of Christ would not have a large and glorious beginning. Start small, but it would grow. It has, it still does today. He tells us then that it will start small, but it would grow rapidly. When it is grown, he says, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. Now, this mustard is an annual plant, it's not like an oak tree. Uh, But it is a substantial plant with a strong enough stalk to provide nesting places for small birds that nest in such protected places as fields of mustard. Jesus inserted His kingdom into the world. It was no doubt seemingly dwarfed by Judaism initially. Uh, here was this Jesus and his traveling band of disciples wandering around. Now, I'm not telling you he wasn't doing great things because he was. He preached to the multitude. Thousands came to heal, hear him. He healed uh, those who had sicknesses. He raised the dead. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. He, he calmed the waters of the sea. And, uh, he was constantly doing incredible, incredible things. But still, they were wandering around. (laughs) And compared to that great edifice in Jerusalem, the temple built by Herod the Great that was still under construction and in fact would never be finished before it actually ended up being ransacked by the Romans. All that time under construction and never really done. But what an incredible edifice it was. And all the support system went along with it. The priests and their thousands of sacrifices that they must have performed every single day. The the songs, the music, the pomp, the ceremony. By contrast, the Christianity must have looked very small to them. Through the work of the local synagogues, the message of Judaism was certainly something that loomed large. And then there was the paganism of the Romans that they also had to deal with. In every city they had their own patron god and goddesses. They had them by the hundreds. And Athens perhaps was the best example of it. Where not only did they have all the gods and goddesses that they knew about. They even erected an altar to the one they didn't know. They didn't want to miss anybody. Uh, Paul would look at them and say I, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious too religion. They're religious their problem was not that they needed more religion they had too much of it already what they needed was to know God the one they didn't know the real one to know Him through Jesus Christ every city had its pagan god and goddess every city had temples Ephesus had Diana of the Ephesians. must have seemed like just a small little thing when Paul and his band of of devoted followers, some Jewish preachers showed up and began to preach in town, working as tent makers, plying their trades, supporting themselves, compared to that mighty edifice of Diana. Christianity looked very small, (laughs) but it grew and it grew. Before long, Demetrius had to call a meeting of the Silversmith Guild. I mean, they had the trade union appeal. Listen, if this guy keeps going like he is, we're going to be out of business. We've got to do something. And they ended up inciting a mob, but it didn't stop. Great as the Diana of the Ephesians, they would cry for hours, they would shout it, but it doesn't matter temple of Diana today is a green cesspool, is all that's left. And meanwhile, the truth of Jesus Christ is still doing very well. Amen. It started small, but it grew. And it grew rapidly to the point that it literally dominated all of the other herbs in the field. There was nothing else like it. The kingdom of Jesus Christ then would grow until it exceeded them all. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 6, they would say this, Paul and his followers, these that have turned the world upside down, are come hither also. I can never read that passage of Scripture, which was given as an indictment of the Christian faith without telling a simple story. You know, if you get a box, a lot of times it'll come with a big old error on the side of it. What does it say? This side up. (laughs) If they would look at the world, they would understand they weren't turning the world upside down. They were turning it right side up. It was already upside down. That's the power of the gospel. But they did understand the message of these men. It's changing the world. It was. It did. It has. It's still doing it today. The kingdom starts small. It still does. Here's a little child sitting in a Sunday school class. He hears that Jesus loves him. Died on the cross for his sins. He learns about believing on Jesus. He learns about trusting Him as His Savior. That child believes on Jesus and receives Him. Just a simple act of believing. It doesn't seem like much. It started small. Just a simple statement of trusting. Just a simple prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And yet that small moment becomes a life-changing and life-dominating event. It grows. It starts small, but it grows and it grows and it grows rapidly. Then the kingdom would be tenacious. When Jesus described how that the kingdom uh, grows like mustard, he was saying something that these disciples certainly would have known. <laughs> and that is that mustard once planted in a field was almost impossible to eradicate. Imagine how small the seeds were. You could not never pick them all. And, of course, remember, they didn't have Roundup, didn't have pesticides. And once they got it in there, it was very difficult to ever get it out. So they uh, considered very carefully before they planted a whole field full of mustard. It was going to pretty much be mustard from then on. You've probably seen, as I have, going by a rice field over not too far from here. And you might see a corn stalk or two growing up on top of a levee. Uh, They didn't get it all out. Y'all seen that? Never in Mr. Burnell's field, I know that. (laughs) None of his. Uh, There's a lot of things that get in fields that's hard to get out. Uh, But mustard was kind of that way. It's very tenacious. It tended to hang around once it was planted. Hasn't there been a marvelous tenacity to the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Once it is established, it's hard to wipe it out. Paul said this about it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. They've tried to wipe out Christianity from the very beginning. (laughs) They killed Jesus. How'd that work out for them? I mean, it just, uh, it's, it, it, all the efforts to wipe it out have, have spurred it on. It's incredibly tenacious. And lastly, a kingdom would bless the world. In verse 31, the last thing Jesus said about it is that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. I can't even begin to tell you how many different ideas there are about these birds. A lot of talk about the birds. Uh, But he didn't interpret it and the disciples didn't seem to be confused by it at all. So there must be a rather self-evident explanation, something somewhere that covered it for them. And there's a number of examples in the Old Testament where kingdoms were compared to trees. Nebuchadnezzar perhaps was the most famous uh, who dreamed a dream uh, about a, a tree that stretched all the way up into heaven itself. And, and all the other beasts and the birds of, of the air were all coming and, and, and hanging around that tree. And he wanted to know what it was. And of course Daniel, who had uh, the Spirit of God in him, was able to interpret the dream and tell Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree. He had indeed established a kingdom. And all of the nations in the world then were being affected by that kingdom. Israel was compared in the same way in the book of Ezekiel. Many other passages referred to kingdoms uh, that uh, would be like a tree. Now, you don't plant mustard, as far as I can tell, uh, just to be habitat for birds. There are some things that you do. I was thinking about uh, some of the efforts made to reestablish quail, for example, in the state of Arkansas. And if you didn't know quail birds were having a hard time, then you're obviously not a quail hunter. Uh, you wouldn't know, uh, but uh, they've they fallen on hard times in our state, and they're trying to get them reestablished. And when you want birds to be reestablished, we well, plant certain crops that are uh, things that are beneficial to them, helpful to them. If you're a dove hunter, you know that uh, if you can find a milo field or fresh-picked corn field, then you're in the right place. You don't really plant it for them, but you know that they kind of like it a whole lot. It's just the way it is. Nobody plants a field, for the most part, for birds. But some of them do indeed get uh, some benefit from it. And that's what Jesus described in this passage. These apparently were ground birds, nesting birds, that would build close to the ground in brushy areas. And they could find enough strength there in those mustard stalks that they could build their nest and get along just fine. It wasn't what he planted the field for, but... (laughs) They were going to be blessed by it. It's not hard for us to understand when we think about the kingdom of Christ. Let me tell you this very plainly. In whatever nation, whatever community, whatever city, whatever county, whatever place, wherever around the world, wherever the kingdom of Christ has flourished, that nation has been blessed. Plain and simple. Wherever the kingdom flourishes, a nation is blessed. Wherever communities are, are flourished, wherever the kingdom of Christ flourishes in a city, a community. Uh, listen, the kingdom of Jesus Christ does not drag a nation down. kingdom of Jesus Christ does not drag a city down, does not drag a community down, does not make it worse. It makes it better. That's his very nature. I have been to countries where Christianity was outlawed. In fact, religion as a whole was outlawed. Put this down in your programs, friends. Socialism and atheism run together like two peas in a pod. Look it up. Look at your history. Uh, Socialism and atheism run together. Why? Because socialism wants to be your God. And it doesn't have any other room for any other God. And so if, if socialism is going to be your God, then... Uh, Obviously, you can't really worship the God of Scripture. I've gone into countries where socialism had fallen, where Christianity then was flourishing, and they were begging for preachers to come and preach the gospel to them. I preached myself hoarse. One of the most frustrating times of my life was having to preach through an interpreter for hours on end. Oh, it's terrible. It was very frustrating for him, even more so, very frustrating for me, even more so for him. Uh, I can only imagine what it's like for the audience, but I've been in those countries. I've been in places where Christianity was unknown just a generation ago, and now it's just beginning, beginning to get started there. Where they lived in a darkness, what some of them call the too dark time of violence and of hatred and of superstition and of fear. Listen, when men make gods for themselves, they don't make loving, gracious gods who will die for you and provide eternity for you. When men make gods for themselves, they are evil and hateful and demanding, and they kill in their name. I can't stand here today and tell you that Christianity as a whole, as if you look out over the whole thing, that there have not been times when Christianity has been on the bad side of things at least what was called Christianity. But it was not the Christianity that is taught in Scripture. It was a a hybrid version, a a perverted version of Christianity that married itself with the state. And it tried to enforce then itself and its will and its power on the world. And many atrocities were committed against uh, people. As a result of that, none perhaps more significant than our own forefathers in the faith driven underground, forced into hiding, severely persecuted by, them, by others who carried the same name and who claimed to be doing the will of Jesus. I can't tell you that everything over the years that's been called Christianity was always right or that it always did right. But I can tell you that wherever the gospel flourishes, wherever the truth of Jesus Christ is taught, Wherever people hear the true gospel and respond to it. Where they look at the teachings of Jesus Christ and try to live by it. The world in that situation is not made worse. It is made better. Every single time. They say, well what does it have to do with the birds? Well, I think the birds are just Jesus' way of reminding us that even people who are not maybe the beneficiaries of the kingdom are still going to be blessed by it. And the best example of that is the very thing that this passage talks about in the millennial reign of Christ. The thousand year reign of Christ. When He will rule over the whole earth. When the lion and the lamb will lay down together. When the child will put its hand in a den of snakes and not be touched. When there'll be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more disease, they're not great millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Not everybody's going to be saved. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us at the end of that reign, the devil's going to come, be loose for a little season, and gather an army like the sand of the sea. Where is it going to come from? From all the people who lived under the reign of Jesus Christ but who did not receive him. You understand? Are you with me? But yet, even though they do not receive Jesus Christ as Savior, they'll still live in that realm of peace. They'll still enjoy that time of prosperity. They'll still experience the greatness of living under heaven's king. And so Jesus promises My kingdom starts small, but it doesn't stay small, it grows, and it grows rapidly. It's very tenacious. You're not going to be able to stamp it out. And even those who are not subjects of it large, is going to be blessed by the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it has. It still is. And it will be. <laughs> Nothing like what it's going to be yet, but it will continue. Here's Paul, just a few followers, his teachers, going along with them, going into a city, starting small. And yet the truth flourishes. A great church is established. Churches all around in that community are established. Suddenly people know who God is, have a relationship with Him, know how to live. Suddenly husbands and wives are treating each other the way that God intends for them to do. Parents are staying at home to be parents. And I don't mean they're not working. I mean they're, they're staying around to be parents the way God intended. They're raising their children in the faith. Listen, a world like that is a better world. I would go so far as to say that America was a better place. A better place when almost 80% of its population was in church every Sunday. Do we need to get America back to God? Yes, America needs a revival. Not so that America necessarily would just be a great nation. We already are. But because there's 300 and some odd million in this uh, people in this nation and all of them need to know Jesus Christ. You say, well, Brother Rich, that's never going to happen. I know that. It never has. I understand that. It goes back to the parable of the soils. God put us in the seed sowing business. If we want to have a big crop, we're going to have to sow a lot of seed. Yeah, the, the tares are always working. Yeah, the tares are in the wheat. Yep, yep, they are. It's always evil at work. It doesn't go away. But I'm glad we've got the parable of the mustard seed because it tells us something this morning. Evil may seem today to be carrying the day. It won't. It won't. It is the kingdom of Christ that is growing, expanding, and that ultimately... rule over the world God has said it, it shall be done that means brothers and sisters in Christ we're on the winning side we're on the winning side and not because of what is done in Washington D.C. but what was done on a hill called Mount Calvary 2,000 years ago we serve a living Savior He's in the world today and I hope today that He's your Savior that you've received Him if you haven't that you will. Let's stand together, please.